The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Now your dad's going for it in your own room. <laughs> Shut up, Ted. Your stepmom is cute, though. Shut up, Ted. Remember when I asked you to the prom? Shut up, Ted! Welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Jay. And I am Mike. This week, Mike had to experience Eli Roth's Knock Knock, starring Keanu Reeves. We'll discuss his thoughts and also do our bottom five lead performances by a superstar actor and offer up a few stat picks to help cleanse the palate. But first, let's roll the trailer. Chocolate with sprinkles. Everybody packed? Yeah. I love you. Bye, guys. Bye. Who's there? Yes? We're so sorry to bother you, sir. My phone got wet and she left hers at her house. Well, if you guys want, you can come in and use my phone. Guys, I have your clothes. They're pretty much dry. Surprise! I can't do this. I'm married. Happily. Yes, you can. Hey, it's all your secret. Just relax and enjoy it. Mike, this week you had to go where no one should go. To the bottom of the barrel of Keanu Reeves' career. <laughs> and while we're at it, this is likely the bottom of Eli Roth's career, too. Hell, it might even be a career low for Lorenza Izzo and Ana de Armas, two actresses very early on in their trip through the Hollywood morass. And yet, everyone here seems down for the proceedings, just thoroughly incapable of pulling off anything close to an entertaining hour and a half. With that said... Were you ready to ask who's there after Knock Knock? Or did you want to close the door to your movie cave forever and hide under your bed? I think we have a lot to discuss about Knock Knock. We're experiencing, as a culture, this amazing Keanu Reeves renaissance, right? He's never been more popular. He's been successful. He's a guy that's got a reputation in Hollywood as being a good dude. Every once in a while, I come across this article, you know, it's like this clickbaity thing where it's like, so-and-so confirms Keanu Reeves' onset behavior is exactly what we thought it was. And then the article is just about how he's a cool guy to work with. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's going to be an interesting part of the conversation, specifically as it applies to Knock Knock. It's worth noting, first off, that Eli Roth is not an, a director that I enjoy. I don't much care for mm -hmm. his films. I don't really care for what I think he represents in the horror community. He's kind of a troll to me. I think he represents the worst impulses of horror fans. You know, I've been a horror fan for a long time now. And I don't know if maybe 13-year-old Mike would have gone nuts for Eli Roth the way that I suspect probably a lot of 13-year-olds went nuts for Eli Roth when Hostel was coming out. But I just, I don't buy into his particular brand of horror. I think it's all shock, no substance, and nothing about this movie made me feel any different. 
He pulls a complete Rob Zombie by casting his wife in the film. <laughs> and I don't know if that was the entire motivation for making this or what. But I had to think, like, how did an Eli Roth film fly this far under the radar? I didn't hear a thing about this movie. I think that that's what's really interesting about Knock Knock. And one of the main reasons that I chose it, Keanu Reeves is in a renaissance period after the John Wick movies. I mean, those really reawakened his career. Uh, he came back, he did another Bill and Ted movie, comes back and he does the, the newer Matrix movie. I mean, all of these things are happening that are very big pieces to Keanu Reeves' career. This thing, and I know he's made a few under the, a few that are rather under the radar as well, but this seems like something that should have gotten way more attention and didn't. I felt as though everybody involved might be a little embarrassed. I, I don't, did it get a theatrical <laughs> release? Because it screams no of direct to it video. Really does. All the way through from the performances. Keanu Reeves is shockingly bad in this movie in a way that I wasn't prepared for. Even even though you said we were going to do bottom five male lead performances, which kind of cued up my expectations. I was not ready for how way, way out of bounds terrible he was in this movie. It's shocking. It's shocking how poor he carries off every aspect of his performance. He can't handle being a family man. He's not a family man in real life. I think it was too much of a stretch for him to play that ordinary everyman. I had in my notes, has Keanu Reeves ever met real children? <laughs> right. I'm a dad, exactly. you're a dad. I like to think that I'm a pretty fun, good time dad, but this portrayal of Keanu Reeves' everyday father was cartoonish to me. He was almost like the zany uncle that's there for the weekend. I actually had to go and kind of check to make sure I didn't miss something in the first three minutes. I was like, is this yep. the father of these children? It was bizarre. And I have got to ask you, how did this guy's weekend go so bad so quickly? Because the family is gone for five minutes. You can still see the taillights going down the end of the street. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he's got two strange teen girls running around his house naked, waiting for an Uber to come and pick them up. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? Is it intentionally? I read somewhere that this was sort of an intentional satire in some ways. And I think it was some sort of misfire with a commentary toward porn or something like that. Because the setup is very, very, very porno. And let's be honest, maybe there have been times where your family leaves the house for the weekend and whatever goes on in your house in the first 10 minutes after they're gone, that's between you and the house. So I don't know. But the women are there right away. He takes them in. You can tell he's trying to be nice. He's trying to be polite. And they just keep pressing and pressing and pressing until suddenly he's having this like double blowy happy father's day moment in the shower <laughs> eli roth who is so heavy-handed is cutting back and forth between th this tryst in the shower and the family photographs around the house oh, it's laughable it's so, it's so it was bad. exactly it had those vibes of rob zombie's halloween uh-huh when they did the Love Hurts. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I know this film is a remake of a movie called Death Game from 1977. I have not seen it. I didn't know it was a remake until after I watched it. And so I'm not sure how it lays the groundwork for that in the original. But the movie doesn't waste a whole lot of time. These two women then start to tear his life apart the following morning when they don't leave. And they start making threats about revealing his night to the 
wife and to the family, and he offers them money, but they don't want money. We, what we get here is just one scene after another of these girls tormenting Keanu Reeves with violence. They tell him that they're they're teenagers, that they're not legal, and that now he's a pedophile. And so they are basically trying to ruin this man's life. He's supposed to be an architect, the classic movie job, right? When you need somebody to be independently wealthy, but not Jeff Bezos, you just have them be an architect. I, <laughs> I don't know any architects in real life, but there are architects all over these movies. And Ke- I mean, Mr. Brady was an architect. Keanu Reeves <laughs> gives us, through this script, a line that I think encapsulates everything this movie is trying to do when he goes, I'm an architect, so... Obviously, I think things happen by our own design. That's another really good example of just how ridiculously heavy-handed Eli Roth is. That that could even make it to a final cut. There's an asthma scene that he does in this movie where this other character who shows up and kind of blows the lid off this thing, he almost rescues Keanu. But they let us know he has asthma because he starts puffing comically on this inhaler in the first five minutes he's there. And so these girls play like a game of keep away with the inhaler while inducing an asthma attack. It's one of the most ludicrous things I've ever seen on film. It shouldn't be written, let alone filmed, and never mind in the final cut of the movie. And there were so many of these things. But really what we need to talk about when we talk about this movie is first and foremost, the performance of Keanu Reeves, because I actually like Keanu as an actor. I think I've liked him in a lot of different roles. I'm somebody who unashamedly likes the movie Speed. I bought him as that action hero. I think he yeah. sells the character of Neo in in a role that I think a lot of other actors would have made seem really silly. You could mm-hmm. see somebody really overdoing a character like Neo. And he's he has that kind of reserve introspection that I think a character like Neo really needs. And then John Wick, the same kind of thing, where he's this inward guy that is bursting with violence when the situation calls for it. I think he's an interesting and compelling actor. He is a very relatable actor. He's likable. He's good looking. He's, he's weirdly charismatic. So I think that there's a lot of, there's a very big fan base for him. Just the mere fact that he was in Bill and Ted and didn't get typecast as that kind of character for the rest of his career. You don't really think of the word range when you think of, Keanu Reeves. But if you think about the characters he's played, he's kind of got some range. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's an intelligent performer and chooses his projects wisely, except maybe for this. And I have to wonder, how did he get roped into this particular project? And I think that's the thing I want to talk about next. But it would be doing a disservice to our audience if we didn't give them the chance to hear a little bit of what I'm talking about. Just give this a listen. Death. Death? You're gonna kill me. You're gonna fucking kill me. Why? Why? Because I fucked you? You fucked me. You fucked me. You came to my house. You came to me. I got you a car. I brought you your clothes. You took a fucking bubble bath. You wanted it. You wanted it. You came out to me. What was I supposed to do? You sucked my cock. You both fucking sucked my cock. It was free pizza. Free fucking pizza. It just shows up at my fucking door. What am I supposed to do? We're flight attendants. Come on, fuck us. No one will know. Come on, 
Fuck us. Oh, two sums, three sums. It doesn't matter. Starfish, husbands, you don't give a fuck. You'll just fuck anything. You'll just fuck anything. So what we just listened to was shocking. Just downright <laughs> reality shredding shocking. That's why I picked this movie. <laughs> you could not have done any better. And we're going to get into our bottom five male performances in a little bit because of all the things that we could have pulled out of this movie, revenge or home invasions, femme fatales, I don't know that that really applies. And, and I want to talk about the gender politics of this movie here in a second. But boy, oh boy, what you just heard is representative of what we get from Keanu for this entire movie, which goes right back to the question. How did this thing see the light of day? I think of something like Texas Chainsaw the Next Generation with Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger that made this terrible movie and then their careers blew up and they went to the ends of the earth to kill the movie so it would never see the light of day. <laughs> right. And I'm a little yeah. surprised that something like that didn't happen here. I think what's happening here is that Eli Roth thinks he's making a feminist film, but he has oh, yeah. deeply wrong-headed ideas about what feminism is. Just because the characters that are doing the raping and victimizing and torture in your shitty movie are women doesn't make it a feminist film. And they do all of those things. They rape Keanu Reeves in this movie. They are violent. They, they turn him into a victim. The entire proceeding is like a repulsive 4chan men's rights incel circle jerk. I'm pretty amazed, going back to it, that Keanu Reeves found himself tangled up in the mess because, as I was saying, by all accounts, he's one of Hollywood's good dudes. For him to get wrapped up in this kind of film with these kind of politics or really just this kind of nihilism, mm -hmm. I, I can't believe that this movie didn't send him running for the hills. To me, the kind of thing that you see these girls do, they act very male. They act very like last house on the left-ish. Yep. You get that kind of vibe out of it. They're not murder. Well, they do murder in this, uh, which is really a line that I didn't expect to get crossed. It was a surprise for me when that right. happened in the movie. And then when they start really acting out near the, the later parts of it, it's just so irrational, so out there. All It's that lazy gender swapping that you do mm -hmm. and for me it seems anathema of keanu reeves overall vibe none of this seems like something that he would involve himself exactly with. exactly and to be clear and i want to i want to make sure that i'm talking about this is that i do not like last house on the left i don't like any of those hostile movies the fact that this is women doing the roles that are traditionally done by men in some of these movies isn't the problem the fact that this is the kind of story that attracts Eli Roth is, is the problem for me. I don't have a whole lot of appreciation for these exploitation films, especially when they're all about trauma and sexual violence. And look, I love horror. I love slashers. I'm not some kind of big softie who doesn't like gore or a lot of the things that the horror genre offers. This can be done well. Something like Michael Haneke's Funny Games that really makes you think. And I, I think we've brought this up even past episodes. So yeah. so you can have a conversation about violence and our relationship to violence. So the fact that this is gender role reversed here, it isn't clever. It doesn't change the movie. It doesn't change the themes of that kind of a movie. What I wanted to do to kind of check my own bullshit was I wanted to find a review of this movie written by a woman. And luckily... Mm. The excellent Alison Wilmore uh, reviewed it for BuzzFeed. And in her review, she talks about the movie 
and Roth's other release from right around the same time, uh, Green Inferno, which is kind of a, a cannibal holocaust. Oh. It was a movie that I actually had on the list to make you watch, which I won't do now. It oh, seems you... pointless. <laughs> but she said these movies, Green Inferno and Knock Knock, are bad faith arguments expanded to feature length and served up with a you mad bro smirk. And as always, Alison Wilmore is spot on because I think this movie is edgelord bullshit. And it really helped me make up my mind about where Eli Roth sits for me in the horror community. He's not some savior who showed up to rescue genre films. He's just that loser kid in high school whose entire social agenda is to go to the mall and freak everybody out. And so I'm glad this movie got buried. I think Eli Roth doesn't deserve to have his name be a brand, an Eli Roth film. And this movie for me absolutely confirmed that. I'm sorry that I had to watch it in a weird, like, can't look away from the car crash kind of way. I'm going to tell our audience that I actually think this is a movie worth your time in a seeing it is believing it kind of way. Okay. But... (laughs) Maybe the clip I played is all you ever need. If if that was enough for you, off you go. But uh, I, I want to thank you, Jay, for offering me a movie I definitely wouldn't have watched on my own and teaching <laughs> me the lesson that even Keanu Reeves can be really, really terrible. Mike, knock, knock. Who's there? Bottom. Bottom Bottom who? Bottom five lead performances by superstar actor. Okay. That's what we had to do <laughs> after watching the abomination. That was, it was cute. It was like a dad joke. <laughs> Bottom five lead performances by a superstar actor. Yeah. How did you read it? I tried to reverse engineer my list. I thought of who are some of the biggest stars of all time. Names like Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Mm -hmm. Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio, those guys all came to mind. I tried to dig a little deeper and thought of guys like Cary Grant, Humphrey Bogart, Henry Fonda. I didn't want to just sort of be in my own little 40-year-old person bubble. Oh, I hear hear Humphrey Bogart. I I know the answer. (laughs) But I, (laughs) I, I thought about those guys and I realized there weren't really any performances from them that jumped right to mind. Brad Pitt hasn't always been good in everything. I considered going with Al Pacino and basically everything between 1999 and right this minute, but I wanted to get specific for the list. So I didn't do that for me. A bottom five performance needs to be one that instantly pops into my mind. I didn't want to do this one with any research or Googling. Like I needed to have this hit me immediately. Like, Oh, I know the worst one because I needed it to leave an impression. It should be like a game of word association. When I say shitty acting without thinking, you say Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze, that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. So that was my thinking. I wanted somebody that instantly popped into my mind as, wow, that was bad. How did you take it? My first inclination was to take this (laughs) in a tongue in cheek way and do something like the bottom five worst lead performances by an actor in real life. Okay. So the list would have looked something like Harrison Ford as an airplane pilot. Uh Uh-huh. Hugh Grant as a monogamous husband. Okay. (laughs) Ben Affleck as an enthusiastic participant in a Batman versus Superman press junket. Paul Rubens 
Paul Rubens as a respectable movie theater attendee. And of course, my number one would have been Tom Cruise as a normal man in love with Katie Holmes on Oprah. (laughs) Alas. Alas, you just gave us that entire bottom five. I love it. There you go. You're like, this is my this is my bottom five that I didn't do that I'm doing. That's exactly Sweet. Why I did Here it. we go. I love it. That's great. I love a good cheat. I love a good cheat. <laughs> Number five. Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. This is an obvious one. And never mind the cloying soundtrack hit by Brian Adams, the everything I do, I do it for you. The true audio crime in this 1991 blockbuster was Kevin Costner's horrific attempt at a British accent, which he gave up on about a quarter of the way through the production. It came in and, <laughs> and out all than... the time. Just some scenes it was there, some scenes it wasn't there. Some Sometimes it was English, sometimes it was Australian. It was unbelievable. And rather than reshoot, they just kept the scenes intact. <laughs> like, who, who decides to do that? You know who decides to do that? Kevin Reynolds, the guy that ended up doing Waterworld with Kevin Costner later on. Um, This was probably about the worst accent work we'd seen this side of maybe like Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent that he did for Mary Poppins. Hello, Mary Poppins. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And he, do you know that Dick Van Dyke apologized for that in 2017? He was 91 years old and he apologized for his Cockney accent. Well, Costner owes the British an apology here. And he also owes New Englanders an apology I don't know if you ever saw the movie 13 Days, but he puts on a horrifically awful uh, New England accent in that one. But back to Robin Hood. By the time he gets with Mary Elizabeth Antonio's maid Marion, who she did a British accent that was fairly decent, uh-huh. um, he just seemed ready to give up on the whole thing. And he it sometimes appears as if he's actually awaiting the end of his co-star's lines so that he can just get his out of the way. It, I mean, you can almost see his mouth moving his other the other actor's lines, right? Like he's he's mouthing the line that comes before it, his line. And to think that this is how he followed up Dances with Wolves. Unreal. Here you are. You you win you win the Oscar for directing your 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 first movie, <laughs> and then you follow it up with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That was my number five. What's your number five, Mike? My number five, Jay, is going to have to be Robert De Niro in the 2016 flick Dirty Grandpa. I watched the movie because the brilliant We Hate Movies podcast was going to do an episode on it, and I wanted to check the movie out first. Dude, what the fuck, Bobby De Niro? It's like the guy has been on a deliberate mission to obliterate his reputation as one of the greatest actors in the history of American cinema. And this one absolutely takes the cake. It was depressing. Robert De Niro was in Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, The Godfather Part Two, some of these amazing performances. But in the last few years, he's just gone from one horrible comedy after another. Those goddamn Fockers movies, Last Vegas... Last Vegas, which honestly could have comprised all five spots on my list, but Dirty Grandpa takes the cake. (laughs) The whole shtick is that De Niro plays an ultra-raunchy old man, and we're supposed to be shocked by that. He spends the entire movie trying to get laid with some college girls while he's driving around with Zac Efron. That might be a funny two-minute video on Funny or Die, but as a movie, it kind of broke my heart. I think a De Niro from... Goodfellas 
He even made a performance as big and over the top as Cape Fear work. De Niro oh, yeah, acted. Max Katie. Yeah. He acted opposite some of the all-time greats. And here he is driving around with fucking Zac Efron talking about his ball sack. Any remaining mystique I had about De Niro as this legendary actor went up in just a puff of dick jokes. Heartbreaking is the only word I keep coming back to. It was so bad, so destructive to a legendary performer that it really just broke my heart. And so... Robert De Niro in Dirty Grandpa is my number five. Well, my number four may bring up some contention between us. Uh, There's a lot of love for this movie. I don't exactly dislike this movie, but this performance definitely does not sit well. And it is certainly one of our biggest superstars. This would be George Clooney in From Dust Till Dawn, 1996 movie directed by Robert Rodriguez. I mean, the whole movie is a schlock fest, so there's, you know, little in the way of decent acting really required, but there's what you get from actors like Harvey Keitel and Fred Williamson, and then there's whatever the hell is going on between Quentin Tarantino and George Clooney. Uh, Quentin, he has the easier job. He's the wormy little brother archetype. Right. That said, he, he appears super awkward in his skin, and then further magnifies what appears to be a serious case of what the fuck am I doing here that gets in the way of almost every line reading by Clooney. He's supposed to be this real tough guy, this ice in his veins criminal with a heart of gold. And that's a balance he somewhat manages when he's not trying to downplay just how fucked up everything is that's happening around him. Clooney seems woefully out of place He tries for a more mannered, seething undertone of threatening violence, but instead he feels like he's playing at hard guy and failing. Everyone else around him is kind of gleeful, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Take take makeup effects legend Tom Savini as Sex Machine or Danny Trejo as Razor Charlie. Uh, These guys lap up the wackiness unleashed in the second half of the movie while Clooney just seems to be treading water at best as vampires explode around him. nowhere is this more apparent than in the scene when he kills the reanimated brother, Quentin Tarantino, and he barely breaks a sweat. That fucking neck tattoo that he has. Why with the neck tattoo? (laughs) I get it. You're a bad dude. It sets me off the same way as when, did you ever see nine to five? Yeah. (laughs) With Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin. I didn't think that was going to be the reference for dust till dawn, but let me have it. Dabney Coleman, when he's in the bondage gear, oh yeah, it, it was that level of embarrassment. That's what wow. the neck tattoo gave me. You know, I actually considered Tarantino for this exact movie. Yeah, I considered Tarantino for every movie he's been in and then realized yeah. it wasn't really fair to consider him for this list. Uh, but you're right. Clooney, Clooney in this one has the role that I think the bad acting sticks out like a sore thumb, especially in a movie where you get... The amazing, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say cinema's greatest all-time scene, above and beyond anything that's ever been committed to film anywhere. It, it has to be Cheech Marin outside the bar announcing what's going on inside the titty twister. Unbelievable scene. Pussy in half. Give us an offer on our best selection of pussy. This is a pussy blowout. All right, 
we got white pussy, black pussy, Spanish pussy, yellow pussy, we got hot pussy, cold pussy, we got wet pussy, we got smelly pussy, we got hairy pussy, bloody pussy, we got snapping pussy, we got silk pussy, velvet pussy, nalga high pussy, we even got horse pussy, dog pussy. Chicken pussy, come on, you want pussy? Come on in, pussy lovers. If we don't got it, you don't want it. Come on in, pussy lovers. There are so many great moments, so much fun to be had in it. I actually really admire what they were trying to do with the shift in tone with the movie, where it starts out as one sort of crime drama and then shifts into a wacky, almost Evil Dead-style horror flick. I really, really admire that, but you gotta be kidding me with Clooney he had no idea what he was doing so uncomfortable it's uncomfortable watching him <laughs> well speaking of uncomfortable I placed my number four pick here for two reasons one this isn't a terrible performance all by itself it's more a victim of horrendous casting that leads to a terrible performance and two I wasn't real sure that the actor was a big enough deal. In fact, I'm positive that this guy doesn't qualify as a superstar. So call foul if you want, but uncomfortable was what this entire movie was for me. In my number four, I'm going with Michael Shannon's portrayal of Elvis Presley in Elvis and Nixon from 2016. The same year as Dirty Grandpa. It turns out it was a banner year for shit movies. I love Michael Shannon. I recognize he's not a Tom Cruise or a Leonardo DiCaprio, but for me, I think he's a generational talent. I love Michael Shannon movies. Anytime that I see he's in a movie, I'm instantly there. I'm, I'm in. But of all the things he is, the king of rock and roll ain't one of them. <laughs> As an actor, Michael Shannon is weird and intense. He has that really craggy face no one in Hollywood has a better stone-faced glare than Michael Shannon. That's why he was so well cast in The Shape of Water. Absolutely. And you know what none Perfect of those point. words do? You know what none of those words do? None of those words, weird, intense, none of those things describe Elvis Presley. This <laughs> pretty boy. That I mean, we all I don't need to explain Elvis to our audience, but this is more a victim of insanely poor casting than a knock on the actor himself. But wow, does this not work? It doesn't help that he plays opposite an almost equally bad Kevin Spacey as Richard Nixon. It's a mess. The whole thing is a mess. You have all the actors to choose from. You have non-actors. You have that little kid from Forrest Gump who played little kid Elvis. You could have picked that kid grown up to be Elvis and it would have been better than what we got here because Michael Shannon as Elvis was wretched. I was telling one of the gals outside, it reminds me of my Graceland. Oh, uh, it does, does it? Uh, how many square feet uh, is uh, this uh, Graceland of yours? Not sure. 10,000, maybe? Well, that is a fine size for a home, isn't it? Well, it's, I mean, it's more than fine. Of course, the White House here is, I think, about uh, 55,000 feet, something like that. Well, actually, I've made a few additions, so uh, maybe a little more than that, but I don't think it's the size of a man's home that defines him, you know? M&Ms are my favorite. Oh, mine too. My number three is Brad Pitt in Interview with a Vampire. Neil Jordan's adaptation of Anne Rice's novel, which I find just awful. And it's largely, for me, Brad Pitt's fault, which is funny because he got 
a lot of notice around the time the movie came out and all the attention was on Cruz because Anne Rice sort of dragged him in the press Big time. for his superstar status. I think that's pretty unfair. I'm not, a, I'm not, look, I'm not a fan of Pitt. I don't think he does a lot of good in most of the movies I see him in. If you contrast him in this movie against Tom Cruise, you'll see that Cruise really nails his character. He totally embodies Lestat with every bit of eerie excess loneliness, seductiveness, and androgyny that is required. He acts big in this thing, which fits for Lestat. Pitt, <laughs> I guess he's wounded as Lewis, but in Jordan's film, The Crying Game, so Neil Jordan, the director, he made a movie called The Crying Game as well, much lauded. I I know you I hate might that movie. Hate it I know you more hate than, that movie. I, know I you might hate it. hate it more than just about any other movie I've ever seen. Wow. The, the vulnerability required for an actor comes off way more pitiful than one can even rally behind in both movies. Um, you want to root for Lewis, um, or at least you want to be able to tolerate him. <laughs> but Pitt was in flat, pretty boy phase here, and he largely just holds an expression of bewilderment mixed with fear that plays at other things like melancholy or whatever. But it's a garbage portrayal. It's sulky and it's lame. And we even get a, pit, a Brad Pitt eating moment in this one. The actor who uses eating as a crush while acting feeds on a rat, which ranks among my very least favorite scenes in any movie. Whoa. So there you go. Yeah. Brad Pitt spent the whole movie looking like he desperately was just... You know when you've been out... It's Halloween and you've been out all night and you get some kind of costume on and you cannot wait to get it off? Brad yes. Pitt spends the entire screen time. All I can think of is like, Man, that guy wants to take his contacts out so bad. <laughs> he just—he looks like he wants to spit the fangs out every second. He looks physically uncomfortable in his face. He hated making that movie. They shot in, I think, Shepperton Studios or thereabouts in England. And it was all at night. And he said it was like being in a tomb all the time. And it was uh, emotional for him. He was miserable. And I do wonder just how much, again, in commentary with Knock Knock, the circumstances of one's life play in a role. And he, he just looks miserable and uncomfortable and he doesn't want to be there. That's a great pick. That's a great pick. And, of course, when we're talking about superstar actors, it's hard to get much bigger than Brad Pitt. A guy that when I like him, I like him. I thought he was awesome in Burn After Reading, a character that is just so far <laughs> against type. He was very type. funny. I do think he was really great in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a movie that is certainly not perfect, but I thought he was awesome in the flick. You found the one that belongs on this list for <laughs> sure. Speaking of being on a bottom five list, quick question. What the fuck was Marky Mark doing playing a science teacher in The Happening? Oh. oh, my sweet, merciful Christ in a chicken basket. Casting Mark Wahlberg as a scientist, it's like casting Andre the Giant as Princess Buttercup. Like, technically you could, but what on earth would make you actually go through with it? The whole performance comes off like a table read. And what I've discovered is that M. Night Shyamalan cannot direct actors to save his life. I've seen enough of his films to know that he either casts a good actor and stays out of the way, like James McAvoy in Split or Sam Jackson in Unbreakable, or he casts Marky Mark as a science teacher and you get one of the most laughably shitty performances that has ever been released into the wild. 
Uh, the one line that I always remember from this is, and it was the only good moment in the film, honestly, aside from the first three minutes or so, which were really riveting. The the suicide then, scenes, and, yes. Correct. And then once it gets to Marky Mark, the, the whole thing just destroys itself. It just implodes. But there was a scene where he was in a house and he's talking to a fern and he says that. He addresses the fact that he's talking to the fern and he says something like, Hello? My name is Elliot Moore. I'm just going to talk in a very positive manner, giving off good vibes. We're just here to use the bathroom. And then we're just going to leave. I hope that's okay. And I just really enjoyed that one moment because it looked to me like the entirety of the film had dawned on him right then. <laughs> oh my God, what am I doing? Yes. Uh, what's happening now, bro? What are we doing? How are we in this movie, bro? Oh man. Mark Wahlberg is not a great actor. He's been passable in some things. I did love him, of course, in Boogie Nights. I thought he was really fun and, and young with that kind of young pup energy. For the most part, he's not a guy that I qualify as a good actor, but he is a superstar actor, I think. And this is he definitely is easily his worst performance, which is kind of saying something. <laughs> I think it's a fantastic pick, and it's one I it didn't even occur to me. I have a problem picking on M Night Shyamalan because I do admire so much about his filmmaking technique, but I have to confess he is pretty terrible with actors unbelievable so i think you've you've nailed it there well with my number two we're going with the biggest of the big superstars or at least at one time the biggest of the big that's right it's arnold schwarzenegger time <laughs> this one is eraser from 1996 directed by chuck russell look it's not an unwatchable movie but eraser is a bad film that marked the beginning of a clear and steep decline in Arnold's output. For sure. Uh, in the 10 or so years leading up to Eraser, you had things like Total Recall, True Lies, Predator, The Running Man, T2, and those three pretty awesome comedies from Ivan Reitman, Twins, Kindergarten Cop, and Junior. Yes. All good stuff. And, you know, there were some clunkers in there, like Last Action Hero, a movie that I liked, but largely everything after Eraser was really rough. Like, just look at his next five movies. Jingle All the Way. Oh, come on. Batman and Robin. Yep, you're right there. <laughs> End of Days, The Sixth Day, and Collateral Damage, which I don't even remember. I'll fight you on Jingle All the Way, but yeah, you're not Yeah, I know, I know it has its apologists. I'm an apologist of End of Days. That's a stack of underwhelming output. Absolutely. After sure. those other movies that Absolutely. I talked about. Absolutely. And I don't think this is the worst movie Arnold's ever done, but it's the one where that upward ascent as an actor and as an English language speaker seems to have just abruptly stopped. Right. <laughs> like, so my most vivid recollection of watching this movie in the cinema was just how terrible his acting was and how his accent seemed to have returned to its Conan strength. <laughs> So this just convinced me that there was a special skill that Ivan Reitman possessed that got a better performances out of him. This movie had a, a super messy production history, 
due to clashes between um, director Chuck Russell, uh, producer Arnold Copelson, who did The Fugitive and Platoon. So that might have been part of the problem for Arnold. Yeah. Like maybe there was just so much friction that he couldn't concentrate or whatever. I don't know. Or maybe it was just that the production leaned too heavily on the digital effects for anyone to give a good performance. Like CG railguns that send people jerking through the air 50 yards. And there's a scene where Arnold plays chicken with a plane while he's parachuting. And then, of course, there's a very memorable fight with digital crocodiles where he utters the line, your luggage, after killing one of them. I feel like maybe I need to watch Eraser pretty soon. <laughs> I don't know. After after a row of movies like the one that he put out after maybe Last Action Hero, so Eraser on, I probably go into politics. Yeah, <laughs> that was I can't believe you didn't go with Mister Freeze. I thought for sure we were going to have a Mister Freeze appearance on the list. Unless the city bows to my demands, it's winter forever here in Gotham. The city fathers will have no choice but to give me the billions I need to complete my research. There's no better place for bad acting than the American political system. So I guess he did the right thing. When you said we're going to do bottom five male performances, I was like, oh, like like John Voight in Anaconda? Yeah, okay. that's I got a list going. <laughs> Dock me if you want. This guy is not a superstar, but he's a heavyweight Hollywood actor. Maybe it's not fair to go this route because a movie about a giant CGI snake and co-starring Ice Cube doesn't require a good performance. But John Voight in Anaconda is a hilarious train <laughs> so wreck. No, it is not so good. I love good. it. I love it. He's certainly not a big glitz and glamour kind of leading man. He's no Tom Cruise, but he's a well-respected actor who has the chops to lead a film. And in this, he's doing an accent that uh, he sounds like. It's so what is the accent? <laughs> I, I can't is it figure like out. Hungarian? If it's, who knows? I think he's supposed to be. It, like, it's kind of a bayou thing, but also, I, I don't know what the guy's doing in the movie. Nobody knows what he's doing in the movie. Every time I watch it, I can't, I can't believe this is the performance. Anacondas are a perfect killing machine. They have heat sensors. A warm body like Mateo's in the water. Wasn't hard to find. He definitely seems like he stepped in from another movie. <laughs> it's just the weirdest thing. But I could forgive a guy almost anything but this performance oh it's terrible I, I, it's it's high camp i think i first of all i don't find fault with you picking him as a superstar i mean i he isn't but he's a leading I, I don't, man that's but not, he's not a superstar my, leading man. right but my bone to pick with you isn't that i think that this is high camp and he knew exactly what he was getting into with it there was no way to really treat this movie anything as anything other than a, a big goof and As I, I said, a giant love, CGI chewing snake scenery. Ice Cube. Yeah, yeah. He's chewing scenery in this. Absolutely chewing it. And I enjoy just about every moment of him on there. <laughs> so it's funny that you had that reaction. He didn't take me out of it at all. Um, it was it's so not a leading I mean, role either. <laughs> if, if a movie is going to be populated by people who almost don't even qualify as actors, when you take a guy as accomplished as John Voight and put him in that movie and he lowers himself to that level, <laughs> that, that was, again, yeah, maybe not a, a superstar, but for me it was an easy word association popped right to my mind. Perfect. 
Perfect. If any of our listeners out there know what accent John Voight was doing, what <laughs> nation, what culture he absolutely offended in his portrayal of whatever the fuck he was doing, please drop us a line at mike at filmjitsu.net or, or jay at filmjitsu.net. Maybe cast a vote one way or the other for which one of us is right. Spoiler alert, it's me. We would love to hear from mm. you. All right. Well, we're down to my number one. And in this case, I went with one of our biggest stars working today. And that this is a guy that I just routinely feel doesn't fit in the movies that he's cast in. No, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, The Aviator from 2004, Marty Scorsese's movie about Howard Hughes. I really did not like him in this movie. I wanted to like the movie. I don't like a lot of Martin Scorsese movies. I'm not a big fan of him as a director. I find his repeated themes of like macho violence and the corrupting influence of power and the, the evil that men do. I just, it just gets real tiring for me. And none of his work underwhelms quite as much as when he teams up with Leonardo DiCaprio. Look, in Titanic, DiCaprio, he's pure charisma and charm. In something like Catch Me If You Can, he turns that charm into like a sneaky, playful troublemaking. And he, I think he's good as like a class clown or a rebel and he can summon vulnerability quite well, like he did in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But when DiCaprio works with Scorsese, I feel like he's far too mannered in his acting. He's too precise and careful. Nothing seems real, especially when he's playing outsized real-life characters like those in Wolf of Wall Street and in this one, The the Aviator, which I think is just a an absolute patience tester. And I know that this movie was really well received. I, I, I get that people like tales of mentally troubled success stories and eccentric leading men. But DiCaprio really struggles bringing Howard Hughes to life as anything more than a live-action cartoon character. His movements, his accent, even the way he raises his voice to demonstrate frustration or anger, it just seems like that it's just a demonstration. That's it. It doesn't have anything behind it. Sometimes going big helps, uh, like Tom Cruise in Vampire Lestat or just about anything that Nicholson does, or Pacino when he has the right part, like something like Devil's Advocate, which I loved Pacino in. That's that's to me when somebody is reading the room right for a piece. But if you go big without an emotional component coupled to the performance, it just becomes bluster and it's pretty hard for me to watch. So I, I find The Aviator uh, interesting as a failure because it really does collapse for me at the feet of DiCaprio. He seems to have earned the full trust of Scorsese, even as he's clearly in uh, over his depth. And it's interesting for me because I mentioned De Niro before. For me, Scorsese, you're right. I think it, I find his themes often tiresome. What he is mm. for me is a showcase for great actors to act great in some of the perform. If you go in some of his movies, the movie itself maybe is, doesn't always work, but some of the greatest performances by the actors of that generation are in Scorsese sure. films, but you're right. Yeah. You know, I kind of feel like, well, if I've seen one Scorsese film that I, I kind of feel like I know what I'm going to get in the next, but you hit it when you said patience tester, I saw the aviator and you're exactly right. That's what it was. It was a movie I, I felt myself just tapping my foot like, when is this going to be over? Yeah, I think it was also really interesting about Scorsese and, and to comment a little bit on the performances is he's really a camera director in many respects. He's another one who, like Shyamalan, we talked about earlier. I mean, you can't possibly 
<laughs> compare these two directors, nope. but <laughs> thank but, you for not trying. Because one gets really effective performances for sure. But I think Scorsese, with The Aviator in particular, used his camera in many respects to enhance or otherwise hide the performance. One of the things that I noticed about The Aviator when I was watching it was just how many wide shots there were in the movie. And I was like, what's happening here? Is he afraid to get in on DiCaprio? And when he does, it's usually with a push or something like that. Something a little bit big, a move to kind of make a statement with the frame because the actor can't do it himself necessarily. Yeah, okay. I, yeah. Well, it's a good pick. For my number one, I'm just going to let the performance speak for itself. <laughs> Let's go ahead and roll a clip of John Travolta in Battlefield Earth. Are you not aware that I graduated top of my class? Quite an accomplishment. I don't mean to second guess the home office, but surely I could be of better service to the corporation. Home office is well aware of your academic achievements and obvious talents. That's why we've decided not to keep you here for another five cycles. <laughs> It's a joke. <laughs> oh, thank you, sir. I, I don't know if I could have kept my sanity to be here another five cycles. Wow. He's never been a particularly good actor. Never. He really hasn't. I think that when Tarantino breathed life into his career again with Pulp Fiction, it was a big surprise probably to just about everybody that this washed up has been who last had success with what the look who's talking movies i think so <laughs> i happen to watch and really enjoy face off really that's um, great recently yeah recently and i my my shameless john travolta movie just sheer number of like watches Greece. this no mm. broken arrow <laughs> oh let's see yeah i have probably Same. watched john Bro Woo. there was a time in my life where I would be like, okay, tonight I'm going to watch Broken Arrow and then Twister. And then tomorrow I'm going to watch Broken Arrow and The Lost World. Howie Long as a henchman in that movie, also unbelievably <laughs> bad. The, the rumor in the family is that my father and Howie Long worked together in a garage in Boston back when my dad was in his 20s. My father went on to have me. And Howie Long went on to have a, a huge NFL career and, and broadcasting career. Imagine the fork in that road. You could be Howie Long, mm -hmm. NFL superstar, or my dad. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't you didn't have to act in Broken Arrow, so I would have loved to. With <laughs> Christian know, Slater. Maybe Christian Slater is like the shitty performance horcrux that we didn't realize. Like if he's in your movie, he poisons the well. Yeah. He was in like the, let's think about it. Afraid of the he dark. was in but but let's think about it here. He was yeah. in Prince of Thieves. He yes, was in he was. Interview with the Vampire. And now here we are talking about it. it. It might be that Christian Slater is like this radioactive. This is the radioactive, the radioactive Kevin Bacon. You can't, you can't, you can't say anything other than you're absolutely right with Battlefield Earth. Well, Jason, we've made it this far. We've discussed a truly all-time terrible Keanu Reeves performance. We went through a whole list of really bad leading actor performances. Now we get to the fun part, our staff picks, that part of the show where we give our listeners 
something to watch, something we enjoy. What do you have for us this week? This week, I actually saw a movie called Encanto, which was uh, a movie from Disney. It's a relatively newer flick. And don't tell me you picked the same movie this week. No, I no, I didn't. But I'm psyched. I'm so psyched to hear you talk about it. Oh yeah, we just saw Lin Manuel Miranda on on a show talking about it, and you know my kid is insane for Lin Manuel Miranda. So I think all kids are, and with good reason. He's very talented. He writes some really cool, fun Latin influence. Obviously, uh, he's from uh, Puerto Rico, so he he really brings this fresh voice to these movies you know and he's done so much recently it's amazing if you think back you know he did moana and he did vivo which was a really cute movie i'm not sure if you saw that one and then he did obviously in the heights which he he directed as well and now encanto which is great but as good as encanto is and it's very good um i know that it's a disney film without pixar so a lot of people are like oh well it's not but the truth of the matter is disney's really come a long way uh in this time with pixar and and i think they've picked up a lot of lessons from them but aside from just encanto before the movie was a movie called far from the tree which is a seven minute short that came from a filmmaker named natalie norigat it's about a parent and child raccoon family and the challenging dynamic between them when it comes to the parents need to keep the cubs safe and i'm telling you this is pretty strong stuff it's well rendered in what appears to be hand a hand-drawn style that harkens back to the early days of disney and it's full of huge emotions for parents and their children i felt this movie as it, it swung for the fences and it went way over them i was in tears by the end of it like sobbing seven minute movie mind you (laughs) this thing hit me right in the core if you've ever had to protect a child from the dangers of the world or just their own curiosity but you didn't do it perfectly that's what far from the tree has a lesson about without being preachy or condescending uh, and i couldn't recommend that short more Uh, i I was also super excited to learn that norigant the creator the filmmaker of Far for the Tree is the current head of story at Disney Animation. So oh, cool. if if this short and in even Encanto is any indicator, Disney may be rolling into a new storytelling heyday to rival their late eighties, early nineties output. My movie this week also has to do with family and children, and it could not be any different in <laughs> mood and tone. The movie that I'm doing for a staff pick this week is a movie from 2017 called Cargo, starring oh, Martin Freeman. So good. Written and co-directed by Yolanda Ramke. This is a movie set in Australia. It's a zombie epidemic, and Martin Freeman plays a family man with a wife and a baby. They're fleeing from this thing, and his wife is killed, and then he is bitten. Mm-hmm. And now the clock is ticking where this father has to find out what he's going to do with this infant before he turns into a zombie. And this movie broke me. I actually stopped the movie before it was over (laughs) and bawled my eyes out at the concept. I was a little amazed that I hadn't seen this before in a zombie film because really, if you think about it, when we get to a global pandemic. Maybe we're all a little bit wiser in this area now. One of the first things you would think of is, how am I going to protect my children? In a lot of zombie movies, we don't see the kids. We see 
the shuffling zombies and they're all grown-ups, but children are largely absent from zombie movies. And in Cargo, Martin Freeman needs to figure out what do I do with this infant before I turn into the thing that's going to kill this infant. Zombie movies do involve children. As you said, it is rare for the vast majority of them, but the ones that do include them do it very memorably, including the very first one, George Romero's Night of Absolutely. Living Dead. It increases the gravity of the whole situation. I don't want to scare people off from watching it because we live in a time when maybe we need a lot more Encanto and a lot less cargo <laughs> in our lives because we're all just struggling here. But I think the the script is so well-crafted. The performances are so tight. The filmmaking itself is crisp and kinetic, but it's never overbearing. The indigenous people that are involved in the film in a way that respects the indigenous people of Australia it's a really, really great film. So it's a tough watch, but I think it's a really worthwhile watch. And so for that reason, I am suggesting that our listeners check out Cargo. I agree. Well, some great picks there to wrap up our show. What do you have in store for me next week, Mike? What happens to me next week? Do you want to watch The Crying Game? Oh, you <laughs> son of a bitch. No, no, no. Oh. Maybe, maybe that, maybe that day will come when you, when you truly cross. You know me. what? Uh, no, no lie. I would watch the crying game again. Here's the plan. Here's the plan. <laughs> Our one year anniversary. When we make it to a year, <laughs> let's celebrate with the crying oh. game. We'll have earned. We'll have earned the right to really review it properly by then. We might be semi, possibly, passably good at this by then, <laughs> and we'll approach that as as a celebratory episode. Okay. But for next week, I want to give you something zany. Mm. We were talking about male performances, and it seems like a miracle to me that we did not ever talk about a Nicolas Cage performance. Oh, nice. <gasps> and here we are, a movie that makes almost no sense. Oh, shit. A movie that I know is likely to drive you up the wall oh, because what the fuck is even happening? No. I want you to watch Mandy. No, no. Fuck. I am positive you've been avoiding Mandy. I'm positive the hype around Mandy makes you crazy. Yes, that's true. I, I, I knew this is one of those. I was like, what is Santo like? A story. What is the story behind this movie? I have no fucking idea. Like this is this. I know this is the kind of movie that I was like, this is fucking. This is Santo poison. So what I'm thinking for a bottom five for Mandy, a movie where Nick Cage essentially screams for the entire thing. <laughs> I think we ought to go ahead and do our bottom five freakouts. Mm, okay. Yep. Absolutely. But that can have multiple meanings, right? Absolutely. Like, I, I think of freakouts as like 60s psychedelia, which is certainly Mandy. You know, it's, sure. a, it's a freakout. It's a film school freakout unto itself. Yep. So It is. But, but it then is. there's freakout, like what? Nick Cage does in that bathroom sequence. So yeah, yeah. It, it could be a, it could be a character having a freakout. It could be a director having a freak out of Fair a enough. film. It, right. We have a lot of different ways that we could go with this, and I think that'll be a lot of fun because what is not going to be fun for you is watching a film oh. I am positive you are going to hate. Mm -hmm. From 2018 by Penos Cosmatos, you are going to be watching Mandy. Mike, that's some vicious swinging that you just took at me, man. <laughs> this is that. This is going to be a very rough, rough week. A week where I have to watch Mandy. I'm going to do my best and see what I can come up with that's more than just me screaming invective at you. So. 
<laughs> I actually am holding a spot on my bottom five freakouts for you freaking out in our episode. <laughs> like number one on my list, Santo, for the past 15 minutes. <laughs> Accurate. Well, until next time, I am Jay. And I am Mike. See you next time. So many different characters, because it has a lot. It has more than like a latter-day Marvel movie. So, I mean, Whoa. it's a lot. Age of Encanto. <laughs>